Hi, I'm Steve Mabb, Chair of the Australian Shareholders Association, and we're proud to be hosting the 2024 Investor Conference in Melbourne from the 19th to the 21st of May. And we're stoked that Phil, the host of this podcast, is going to be our special guest MC. If you haven't heard much about the ASA Conference, it's a flagship event that attracts around 300 investors and industry professionals, including the Chair of National Australia Bank this year, the Chair of AGL. We have Dr. Sam Hupert, the founder and CEO of Primedicus, and we've also got Richard White, the founder and CEO of WiseTech coming along, along with many others. For a limited time, new members can enjoy special pricing on registration for the upcoming conference, along with a complimentary 12-month digital membership with the ASA. That's two-day conference registration plus one-year ASA membership for $499, a saving of $150. Simply search for Australian Shareholders Conference Register, click on two-day conference non-member, enter the discount code MEM, as in member, 499, the number's 499, so that's MEM 499 to claim your special offer. Come along and meet me and Phil at the conference. We look forward to seeing you there. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of Shares for Beginners. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Shares for beginners. Best fund managers seem to be very good psychologists as well, I think, in reading body language, reading people. So I think they can tell pretty quickly whether management is under the pump or not. And management from their side, I suppose, want to hide their body language and try and always put on a positive front. So it is a little bit of a dance, a bit of a game in some ways that you're always trying to put the best spin on things and they're trying to de-spin. The fund manager's job is to unspin what's coming out of the corporate. G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. Perception is everything. As Yogi Berra, the great philosopher and baseball player said, you can observe a lot just by watching. My guest today is from Market Meter, a company that undertakes investor sentiment research, benchmarking ASX and NZX, listed companies by measuring and interrogating investor perceptions from a data pool driven by super funds, industry and corporate support. Now that may sound complicated, but my guest today will make it all clear, right Nick? Yes, that is correct, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we're in agreement, a furious agreement on this. Now, Nick Coles is the Managing Director of Market Meter that does all those things I just mentioned. He's also a fellow bass player. We've got a bass playing background together and a former goth as well. And somehow he got from gothdom into the financial services industry. Yes, uh, that was a very interesting start in life, I suppose, for not something that you'd expect. I actually started off selling insurance after my goth years uh, with National Mutual, would you believe? And uh, I had the dreadlocks and I used to slick the dreadlocks down with hair gel so that I could look semi-presentable in a corporate environment. This is fresh out of an arts degree at UNSW. Oh, so you started out like me, an arts bum as well. I was. I did economics first and I found that completely boring and uh, uninspiring at the time, very theoretical. And so I, I relished the arts degree and the culture at the time. 
the subculture, the Gothic subculture was quite noticeable and I was attracted to that. My girlfriend was into that scene and um, we used to listen to Triple J and I think you were working with Triple J, weren't you, Phil? Many, many years ago. So then you got into the financial services industry and um, selling insurance and then what happened after that? So then I joined my father, who was in recruitment at the time, mostly focused on the investment banking industry. So he used to love chasing the big fish, the brokers, the guys on the big salaries, and you'd take a percentage of that. So it was a decent fee. But of course, if you didn't make a recruitment, you didn't make any money either. So it was very flying by the seat of your pants kind of stuff back then. He did some research to back that up on the the broking industry. And basically that research morphed into what we're doing today on the ASX 200. And so are you, are you a founder of Market Meter, a co-founder? Yeah, I'm a co-founder with Rebecca Thompson, who's had uh, a lot of experience in, in the markets as an analyst and also in corporate affairs and investor relations. I'm very fortunate to have convinced her to join me in this venture. And uh, I've learned a lot from her. And I think we've made some great upgrades to what I was doing previously through her experience. And how long has Market Meter been around for? So we've only been around for about three years and we've had to build the technology. I did have some technology prior to working with Rebecca, but we basically started all over again and made it it a lot better. And um, the technology basically gathers data on the ASX 300 companies. There's 27 categories that we've got and um, those performance categories are things like how good is the CEO how good is the CFO, how desirable is the company to invest in. And uh, we basically get the investors, the professional investors, to score each of the companies that they cover within the 300 out of 10. So it's basically scores out of 10, 27 categories, 300 companies, a big matrix of data. And at the end of it, you can say, okay, well, who are the best CEOs? Who are the best CFOs? Which company is the most desirable company to invest in? all through the eyes of the professional investors. How do you get them to fill out this information? I guess what's in it for them to help you out to gather this kind of information? Yeah, look, that, that's a good question and that, that's the, the most natural question that everybody asks because, uh, as you can imagine, it's something they really don't want to do. They don't want to share uh, what they see as their intellectual property with anybody because what they think about these companies is going to determine whether or not their portfolio outperforms someone else's portfolio. So it's a competitive environment and um, getting them to share those views with you is incredibly difficult. So how do we do it? First of all, we make it really fast and easy, the interface to share that data with us. And secondly, we provide them with really detailed feedback on where their views sit relative to their competitors. So if you're a fund manager, let's say fund manager X, you might want to know where you sit in terms of the investment desirability of a given company that you cover with respect to fund managers A, B, and C. And you'll get that detailed feedback from us, not one-on-one, but as groups. So this group of fund managers has this view on this company, and that's different to your view in this way. And that's what they like about it. And there is another way that we encourage them to participate, and that's through the super funds. So everybody contributes money to superannuation. It's mandatory in this country. That's probably something everybody knows. There's literally billions and billions of dollars sloshing around in superannuation money. Where does it all go? Well, it goes to your super fund, and then they give it, usually some of them manage it internally as well now, but usually they'll give it out to 
a whole bunch of what we call fund managers or investment managers. They're the people who actually make the decisions on which companies to invest in and which companies not to invest in. It gets a bit more, do you go underweight or do you go overweight? Now, most of them invest in most of the big companies and then it's just a matter of, well, am I putting more into this relative to the index or less relative to the index? But then those super funds get our data and they'll encourage their investment managers to participate in our research. So that's another way that the data sample is collected. This is a really interesting insight into how big super works. You just kind of think that your money goes in there every paycheck and then they're investing it on your behalf. But um, obviously that's way too much for them to do by themselves. So they farm out that kind of work to other managers to manage those particular finances. Is that a fair assessment of how it works? Yeah, absolutely. So you might have a super fund that's got maybe $150 billion. Give or take a couple of of bucks. (laughs) Give or take a few billion there, that's it. And so obviously some of that will go into Australian shares. Some of that will go into international shares. Some will go into Australian property, some foreign property, some into bonds, into debt markets, some into cash. But a, a chunk of it will end up in Aussie equities. And of that, some of that is now more and more being managed internally by a team within the super fund but also a lot of it is managed externally by other fund managers, a whole group. So, for instance, one of the super funds that supports us has about $150 and they've got about 12 investment managers and they have a team that they've just started up internally that might have a few billion of the Aussie equities money under their auspices and then the rest of the Aussie equities will go out to those 12 investment managers. It does end up all over the place, the, 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 the money. Uh, <laughs> they're getting more sophisticated at tracking where it lands, but it is a complicated process and, yeah. So the information and the data that you're collecting, this is not for people to base investment decisions on. This is more in terms of, I suppose the word is qualitative analysis of how good a company is and how well it's run. Yeah, that's right, exactly. It's not financial advice at all. It is basically just research that we conduct on the opinions of the professional investors. And we aggregate that data to come up with uh, what you'd say is, I suppose, consensus views of of a group of professional investors taken at a point in time, which usually four to six weeks that we collect the data. So it's retrospective, it's not forward-looking, and it's just this group that we happen to sample in our research. So whilst you might say that these are the people making the investment decisions, so their viewpoints are obviously interesting to understand because they're the ones driving the share prices. You know, you can understand that if a group of investors that own 70% of a company decide that they don't like the company as a group and they start selling those shares, the share price will obviously go down. And it's a bit more complicated than that. And there's a wide variety of viewpoints which show up in our research across a wide variety of funds. And we're only getting some of those viewpoints. So you, you do need to take it with a grain of salt. And I wouldn't be putting investment decisions based on making investment decisions based on our data. So apart from the investors and the fund managers and, and the big institutions, this data is used by companies as well. How would they um, look at this data and how would they use this? So basically, um, it's called investor sentiment data. So it's the sentiment, the opinions, the perceptions of those professional investors who are the fund managers and the investment managers. So what they think will move the share price collectively. So if there's a sentiment that's building 
on a particular company uh, in a particular area. And that sentiment will ultimately affect the share price depending on what area of the company they're talking about. So we break it down into five groupings. Those 27 categories we look at, are, there's ESG, which has been very topical lately, environmental, social and governance factors. There's management, which is obviously the CEO, the CFO, things like the credibility of the company, the leadership. Then there's financials, which are things like earnings quality and uh, investment desirability and value. And then you've got strategy. So you've got execution, quality and clarity of strategy. And you've got engagement, shareholder engagement. How well does the company communicate with investors and the investment community? So depending on which area you're talking about, if sentiment is weak in any of those areas, it can potentially tank the share price. And tanking is a bit of a hyperbolic statement. If it did just go on a slow slide or a decline, and that will obviously be of concern to leadership and the companies, it's obviously always in their best interest to have their share price going up. So you need to know if it's going down, why is it going down and how can we stop that? How can we turn it around? And that's what our data does. It helps them understand that. Then they can come up with a strategy to communicate better to the market in the areas that the market's concerned with. So it's kind of an interesting form of a, a beauty contest, really, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't promote that particular sort of interpretation of it, but we do publish leaderboards. We did recently put out the top 10 CEOs, CFOs and boards of the top 100 and the 101 to 200. And they were actually surprisingly, well, I guess not surprisingly, extremely popular. So we had literally hundreds of people going to our website. And that's the first time we've ever published that data. We've never had any real strategy around putting that data out there and it got widely viewed. So obviously uh, some of those areas, there's not a lot of recognition for the people working in those areas, particularly the 101 to 200. I think people pick over the 100 a lot, but the CFOs in the 101 to 200, I think don't get a lot of recognition for their work. And I, I think we can provide that by showing people who the investors feel are doing the best jobs in those areas. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Like you say, ESG is something that investors are really interested in at the moment. How is ESG assessed under your criteria? Yeah. So Rebecca and I actually did some work with the Responsible Investment Association of Australasia a few years ago, and we helped work on their benchmark reports, Responsible Investment Benchmarking Reports and Super Industry Benchmarking Reports. And it looked at the various ways fund managers use ESG in their investment processes. And there are about seven different ways that you can incorporate ESG into your investment process. Probably the most popular, the fund managers will come up with a perception of the quality of the ESG of a given company and then run that in tandem with an engagement policy where they would talk to the companies behind closed doors to try and get them to improve in the areas of ESG that they might be lacking in. And those areas in particular, or the ones that we look at, 
the climate risk management, culture and conduct, effectiveness of board, remuneration policy, social license, supply chain risk management, and sustainability reporting. Sustainability reporting was one that we worked on with an industry partner of ours, the Australasian Investor Relations Association, AIRA, A-I-R-A, and we've worked quite closely with them and they've been very helpful to us. They represent companies, so they're interested obviously in what investors think as well. They need that open dialogue and communication. How does that communication work? I mean, is this something that comes up at annual general meetings or are people talking to the companies directly about their ESG concerns for that particular company? Yeah, so they do speak to companies directly. So fund managers will often meet with companies. Obviously, CEOs are very busy and fund managers are very busy. So it's not always possible for them to get together. But the investor relations team at a company will usually be the way that those communications take place. ERA is the industry association for investor relations And they do a lot of great work in uh, educating their members. And I think they've got trillions of dollars of market cap represented in their membership. I think it's something like 160 of the top 200 companies are on their books as members. And they hold a lot of conferences and educational workshops for their members. And sustainability reporting is one of the areas that's growing, obviously. So they get a lot of questions on what should we be doing to satisfy investors around that. And everybody, I think now, most of the big companies will have a sustainability report But they need to go further than that and they need to issue more data around that. So we look at the transparency and completeness of the reporting and the disclosures. And uh, there's the TCFD, I think it's the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures that's come out. And so there's actually a lot of bureaucracy around it that they have to work their way through. So it's just a lot of work for investor relations. So I think a lot of ESG has come under the investor relations auspices now, so they need to get up to speed on it. And I think AIRA has done a great job in helping their members with that. And hopefully this category that we've put in our research will help everyone as well to get feedback on whether they're doing it properly or not in the eyes of the investors. There's two points here coming out of that for me. Is First of all, ESG is a very broad category. I mean, there's a lot of difference between governance issues as opposed to sustainability issues. And the other thing, of course, that's coming out is we're talking about investor relations here. So people that own shares in a company are investors, and presumably they can go and talk to the investor relations departments of these companies about any concerns they might have or to find out in any more information. Is that the case? Yeah, so there's there's usually a, a split, depending on the size of the company, between the retail and institutional investor relations teams. The Obviously, the institutional teams tend to be bigger, and the retail investors often will be pushed off in a different direction to a registry to make their inquiries to put through, because there's obviously thousands of retail investors and probably beyond the scope of any one person to deal with that many people's inquiries. So they they tend to use share registries to answer any queries of that nature. Whereas institutions, you've got a large amount of money concentrated in the hands of a few people. So it makes sense for them to put a small team together to answer those queries because those investors are moving billions and billions of dollars, whereas, as you say, an ordinary, humble, everyday retail investor might only have a few thousand bucks worth of shares and there could be thousands of those people. So it's just the way that the dynamic is structured that the teams will be facing the institutional investors' inquiries rather than retail investor inquiries. 
Let's talk about institutional investors. We hear the term instos, institutional investors. Just give us a brief overview of that so that uh, we can come away with a little bit more wisdom on some jargon in the industry. There's a lot of jargon and it took me quite a while when I started to try and understand that people could say the same thing with five different words and yet those five different words in a different context could mean something completely different. So English is terrible and great in that respect as well, but also very hard for people coming in new to get a handle on. But an institutional investor is just a company or organization that invests money on behalf of other people. So you, you'll get mutual funds, pension funds, insurance companies that are the biggest examples of those. And they just aggregate other people's money. So ultimately, it goes back to retail investors, but it's just through an organization that concentrates that money. And they make the decisions on behalf of those millions of investors behind the money. So the other big measurement is management. And of course, you'd expect that management would be one of the biggest factors in the success or failure or non-performance of a company. How do you look at management and the quality of management? Yeah, so we break management down into five categories, credibility, effectiveness of CEO, effectiveness of CFO, leadership depth, and operational management. Far and away, the most interesting of those is obviously the CEO. And there's a lot of media focus on the CEO. It's a lot of pressure in that job. Um, I think uh, you wouldn't really want to be a CEO given the uh, media spotlight. Even in spite of the money that they make? Yeah. Would it be worth it? I don't know. <laughs> yes, they do make a lot of money. This is true. So that's well documented as well. That comes with a lot of pressure. <laughs> so um, I don't know. It wouldn't be for me, that's for sure. <laughs> Not of a big company. <laughs> you have to be very brave to take on that spotlight. Some people revel in it, as you know, with Elon Musk. <laughs> it would be a famous example of somebody who revels in the media spotlight in that role. And Richard Branson comes to mind as well. Yeah. So let's get back to those criteria that you're looking at. So those five criteria, like all of our criteria, they're just scores out of 10. They each come with a definition that we give to investors when they score them so that they're clear on what exactly it means. And they're probably the league tables that we put out Probably the most interesting ones will be the CEO and the CFO and the board, of course, as well. But board is, is in the, the ESG area, not the management area. So the scoring is based on the perception of the investors that are filling out this data. How does that work? Yeah. So basically, a fund manager will have a view on what they think of the performance of the CEO. And we want to tap that view to find out whether they're favorably impressed by the CEO or not. So we'll ask them to score the CEO out of 10, where 10 is the best. So an investor might give a CEO they like a lot, a score of nine. Someone they don't like very much, we get a score of two or three, I suppose. And believe me, that does happen. And we would never <laughs> name anyone. <laughs> we only ever release publicly the positive stories. Okay. And um, you'd think also that the performance of a CEO or a CFO would be closely tied with the performance of the financials as well. Are there any ever any dichotomies there or are they usually go hand in hand? So it's funny because I just had a meeting with a client about the correlations of the different categories with each other and what is it that people think about when they're scoring the CEO or which categories run in tandem with the CEO. And what you do find is the correlations are most strongly with the management categories within their own categories. So if you're a financial category, the other financials will be more strongly correlated with you. So the scores will run in those groupings. So credibility and CEO tend to run together, for instance. So the credibility of the company hangs a lot on the credibility of the CEO, for instance. The financials 
are obviously very important as well. And yes, the CEO would be judged. You wouldn't say live or die by their financials, but yes, there would be a very high correlation with the performance. <laughs> it's very important to uh, <laughs> shareholders. You're right, but it's not everything. So the strategy. So investors will punish a company if the share price is going down. So the financials are important in that respect, but they'll stick with a company if they understand the strategy and they like the strategy. So so you've got to look at those two other areas in tandem. And uh, when we started out, we only had clarity of strategy. We've since added execution of strategy, but also you need quality of strategy. So you've got to look at those three strategic areas together as a company and drill down into those to see where exactly any problems might be if there's a drag on the share price. Let's say that financials are quite good, but the share price is going down. It must be the strategy, you would imagine, that would be the drag and vice versa. So you'd pick apart all of those different aspects to try and work out what is driving the share price and the most strongly correlated categories with investment desirability. Let's cut to the chase. Is the company a desirable investment or not? So that category gives it to you under the glaring light of day. This is it. This is the number. And then you want to say, okay, well, what's driving that number? Which categories are most strongly correlated with that number? And of course, the financials are a big part of that. But also what you've got in there is the strategy and the CEO and the credibility. So it's quite interesting data to dive into. It's interesting. I recently did an interview with a fund manager who loves asking questions of management and CEOs. And one of the things he likes to find out is if they have a strategy, if it's changed and they haven't mentioned it between quarterly reports or half-yearly reports. Right. Interesting. Yeah, no, it's an interesting way of looking at it because you want to see a strategy, but if for some reason the strategy changes without explanation, <laughs> yes, that couldn't be a good look. <laughs> That's raising a red flag, is it? So uh, you find that best fund managers seem to be very good psychologists as well, I think, in reading body language and, <laughs> and uh, reading people. So uh, I think they can tell pretty quickly whether management is under the pump or not. And management from their side, I suppose, want to hide their body language and try and always put on a positive front. So it is a little bit of a dance, a bit of a game in some ways that you're always trying to put the best spin on things and they're trying to de-spin. The fund manager's job is to unspin what's coming out of the corporate. But in between all of that, I suppose you've got probably very frank and earnest discussions where behind closed doors, they might be a little bit more direct with each other than what they might do and say in public. So yeah, when everyone's uh, watching. But it would all be market available information, of course. There'd be nothing market sensitive. They just might be a little bit more direct in their viewpoints. So in your view, what makes a good fund manager in terms of interrogating the company? Right. That's a good question. Um, I think they do have to be psychologists. I, I did have a mate of mine who was actually very good at it and he had really strong performance he was more on the small cap side though. And I think what makes a good small cap fund manager could be quite different to what makes a good big cap fund manager. I think obviously you've got to have exceptional financial skills and understanding there, but I do really believe you need to understand the psychology, not just of the company, the management, but also the markets. I think the best ones understand the beast that is the markets and they understand where the flows are coming and going from, but they'll understand that sentiment, the longer term sentiment. I think if you're a value or growth investor, you need to understand beyond just a couple of days or weeks, you need to look at the position of the company in the market and what the sentiment is about the strategy of the company. 
how it's perceived. But beyond that, you need to know the market of the company as well, how it's positioned within its market, with its consumers, with its stakeholders, its credibility overall, not just the CEO and CFO, but how it's relating to its consumers. And what's going on, I suppose, it depends in the market, the broader market for that company, whether it's domestic or global. But I think the coronavirus has challenged a lot of <laughs> a lot of investors and you've seen some big winners come out of that. I think Zoom was one of the well-noted ones, IT, obviously, some healthcare companies as well, probably. But uh, yeah, it's not a job that I'd like to do <laughs> either. I think there's a lot of pressure. CEOs and fund managers are picked over ruthlessly day in, day out by their stakeholders. And uh, it's a lot of scrutiny, Phil. So I don't envy these guys and girls. Market Meter has an app that you can download onto your, your mobile phone as well. Tell us about the app and what you can find out from the data that you're presenting. Yeah, so the app is more for respondents or participants to our research. So it's more for fund managers, for investors, rather than the sort of public. My business partner will kill me for this, but I suppose we could push some of the data, the league tables out through the app at some stage for retail people to look at. But at the moment, it's just a mechanism for gathering data from investors. And it was something that they asked us for that would be quicker and easier for them in some instances to score their stocks that they cover you know, when they're uh, on the bus or the train or, uh, you know, in bed late at night on their iPad. While they're still working. <laughs> yes, while they're, they're still working, that's it. <laughs> so tell us about some of the publicly available data that listeners can go to and um, see some of these scores for their favourite companies. Yeah, so what we've pushed out at the moment are the top 10 CEOs, CFOs and boards across the 100 and also the top 10 in the 101 to 200. It's available on our MarketMeter website, marketmeter.com.au, under news and events. And uh, we're also pushing it out through some other affiliated media organisations, such as ListCorp is another one. Uh, give a shout out to John Daly at ListCorp there, who will be running some of the league tables as well, and Boardroom Media as well. Those guys will be pushing some of the data out there. And there will be from time to time some comments and interviews from CEOs and CFOs on the data and some of those articles as well. So it could be interesting to uh, retail investors. Nick Coles from MarketMeter, thanks very much for joining me today. Thank you very much, Phil. Thanks for having me. Shares for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not shares for beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thank you for listening to my podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.